Now, um, uh, we are looking at um, eschatology, and uh, we're, uh, we're going to look at heaven tonight, but we're going to look at it in a big picture kind of frame, and then uh, next week we're going to, is it next week? Or, yes, next week we're going to look at it more in terms of the sort of practical questions and the kind of questions that everybody wants to know about heaven, and we'll address some of those issues uh, maybe next week. Uh, but I want to pick up tonight on the big picture as to the ultimate uh, plan of God uh, in the restoration of creation and, and the formation of uh, what the prophet Isaiah in chapters uh, 65 and 66, closing chapters of the prophecy, refers to as the new heavens and the new earth. Now, in doing that, well, let me pray first. Heavenly Father, we, we come again into your presence. Thank you for a gospel that is ever true and never changes our need of cleansing and forgiveness remains the same. And we thank you for a word of, of gospel truth that has perforated from uh, the heavens beyond, that addresses us in our very point of need, that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew uh, first and also to the Gentile. We thank you that uh, therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. And we pray now this evening as we uh, study together, as we think about heaven, as we think about uh, the, the ultimate course of this universe that you have created, uh, we pray for your blessing as we think through what Scripture teaches and ask for uh, the work of your Spirit to apply it to our hearts and, and minds, that the Word might dwell richly in our hearts by faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in going in the direction that we're going this evening and looking at the big picture, we're, we're, we're passing over uh, the second coming because I, I want... Uh, I want to look at the, the second coming and, and what's sometimes referred to as the, the constellation of events that surround the second coming, either, either on this side of the second coming or, or perhaps for some on the other side of the second coming. I, I want to look at all of that in the spring uh, and, uh, and issues uh, like premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, th those sort of things we're going to look at in the spring. And I'm, I'm passing over now to, uh, to uh, the, the ultimate goal, the ultimate uh, aim of God, the talos of God uh, in redemption. Now let's pick up some, some strands of thought here from uh, the Scriptures uh, beginning with uh, this thought that the present order must give way to the final order of things. And let's, let's pick up that idea in Galatians 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins 
to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To deliver us from this present evil age. So there's a present age, but there's an age to come. An age into which we, we, are, we are brought from this present evil age. So there's this age and there's the age to come. Now, all this remarkable statement in Romans 13, uh, as Paul has kind of segued at the end of Romans into that practical section, and he's dealt with our, uh, our responsibility to the state and the powers that be that are ordained of God and so on, and render to Caesar what is Caesar's and so on, uh, in, uh, in Romans 13. Uh, but then in, in the midst of which he says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. It's a perspective, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of, of understanding where we are in redemptive history. And we are, we are at the end of the night. The dawn is about to break. And because Paul is writing this uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, that, that dawn when the, when the sun... And, and you woke up yesterday to this amazing scene of a blue sky and a big light in the sky, wondering what that was, uh, but uh, after, after days of darkness. And uh, that's, that's the kind of picture that Paul is using to, um, to paint a picture of this age and the age to come. We are transitioning from an age of darkness to an age of light, uh, when uh, the day is at hand. And he's referring to the second coming, but he's also referring to the age to come that it will, will follow the second coming. Uh, this age, this present evil age, the age to come. Uh, it's a thought that's captured in the larger catechism in question 83, and, and it is the larger catechism. What is the communion uh, in glory with Christ which the members of the invisible church enjoy in this life? And the answer, the members of the invisible church have communicated to them in this life the first fruits of glory with Christ as they are members of him, their head. And so in him are interested in that glory which he is fully possessed of. And as an earnest thereof, enjoy the sense of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, the hope of glory, as on the contrary, sense of God's revenging wrath, horror of conscience, and a fearful expectation of judgment are to the wicked the beginning of their torments which they shall endure after death. Well, that's obviously the larger catechism. That's not a, a catechism you could learn uh, easily. Although I did have an elder one time uh, who learnt the entire larger catechism off my heart, and I had the uh, joy, and, and, and uh, it was a humbling experience, uh, as someone who has never uh, memorized the larger catechism, uh, to hear him recite uh, perfectly uh, the larger catechism. It was an extraordinary feat. Um, but you notice a couple of thoughts there. Uh, the, the present church is enjoying the first fruits of glory, the invisible church, is uh, in enjoying the first fruits of, of, of glory. 
there's something now, but there's something more and, and fuller to come. Second uh, Timothy 4.10, the natural man suffers from uh, eschatological myopia. Don't you like that? Eschatological myop- myopia. Um, we, we, are, we are willfully blind to what is to come. We shut our eyes to what is to come. Uh, in love with this present evil world, as uh, Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 4.10. Uh, this world is passing away, but we, we focus, we choose to focus on this world uh, in love and, and, and sadly fall in love with this present evil world, forgetting that this is, this is a pilgrimage on uh, a journey that will, that will end in the new heavens and in the new earth. Uh, hence, uh, w- the need then to have our eyes opened to see this age in light of the age to come. This age as a preparation for an age to come. Now, um, again, uh, another, another uh, thought pattern, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 31. The present form of this world is passing away. Uh, the present schema uh, of this world is passing away. Form, schema. Um, the order of this world is passing away. And it's, and it's transitioning, it'll transition into a new order, the new heavens and new earth. But this, this perspective that you have in the New Testament of a relationship between the now and the not yet. Uh, Romans 8, 18, our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. So there's suffering here, there's glory there. And, and the thought of Paul very often is that there's no way to that glory except through the sufferings. That the sufferings is actually the pathway to glory. Not just, not just in a chronological sense that, that glory follows suffering, but, but actually in a causal sense. That you can't actually get to glory apart from passing through this present suffering. And that this present suffering in a way prepares you molds you, shapes you, conforms you into the image of Christ uh, in, its, in its full and glorious sense and complete sense and perfect sense uh, for which uh, the age to come uh, will, uh, will be. Will, uh, and Second uh, Corinthians 4, similar kind of thought, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So notice the contrasts. Things that are seen, things that are not seen. Here we live by faith, there we live by sight. Here, transience. There, eternal. So, so this form, this present schema, this present world, it's passing away. It, it's transient. And, and it's leading to the eternal. 
Well, that's a perspective. It's a perspective uh, that deeply shapes uh, the contours of the way we view the Christian life, uh, that we are pilgrims and that we're passing through. Now, that raises a whole slew of questions, of course. What is our relationship to this world? And, and some have said, well, if we're passing through, then we have no relationship to this world, so, so, so we, we need to withdraw completely from it. And others have adopted the opposite view, that, that, that we are here to be a, a light, a city that is set on a hill to influence as much as we possibly can this, this world. But knowing that, that this world is not our home, realizing that this world is but a preparation for the world to come. Now, uh, let's dig a little deeper. Uh, the fall, and by which we mean the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden in, in Genesis 3, the fall results in the rejection of the eschatological. Uh, so, uh, let me flesh that out a little bit. Man is created, and, and created in the image and after the likeness of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And part of that image of God, reflecting something of the, the fingerprints of the divine, part of that is the realization that we were made to glorify God. In the gospel, what happens in the gospel is that we are restored in the image of God to rediscover what we were created for. Man, apart from the gospel, is lost. That's part of the problem of the natural man, the unconverted man or woman. They have no sense of fulfillment. They have no sense of goal. They have no sense of purpose. But one of the things that we discover in the gospel is a sense of purpose. We, we understand why we're here. We're here to glorify God. That's our, that's, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God, to enjoy Him uh, forever. So one of the things that happens in the fall is to lose sight of that goal, to lose sight of that, that telos, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Uh, as a result then of a... Um, Understanding the relationship of Adam in the Garden of Eden, understanding that as a covenantal relationship, uh, understanding that as a covenant of works, understanding that as a period of probation, uh, that had Adam fulfilled that mandate, that law that was given to him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have been confirmed, he was punished for not doing it, but but we infer that had he, had he been able to fulfill that mandate, he would have been confirmed in that status. Uh, and, and, and the probationary period would have ended. Passing from a, a, a period and a setting and a condition of probation into a, a, a setting of confirmation. And of course we don't... We, we don't know what, what that would have meant for Adam and Eve had they, had they fulfilled. Um, and one imagines that perhaps they would have transitioned into the, the eternal state uh, of glory immediately. Well, that's, a, that's a conjecture, of course. Um, but, but as a result of the fall, man rejects that, that goal for which he is created. 
Now, um, in uh, Romans 1.23, man exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Uh, one thinks of uh, Calvin's Institutes uh, 1.11.8. Um, man's mind is a perpetual factory of idols, uh, a, a factorum idolorum, he calls it. It's a perpetual factory of idols. A very vivid image uh, in Calvin's Institutes of this like, conveyor belt. Uh, imagine a conveyor belt in the factory producing widgets, and, and, and one after another, they just keep popping out. And, and, and man's mind is constantly producing Im- uh, uh, false images of God, idols. As we were thinking this afternoon at our lunchtime meeting, as Augustine says, that man after the fall is uh, uh, incurbato sensei, Augustine said. He's curved in on himself. Instead of looking to God and glorifying God and seeing that as the fulfillment of his, uh, of his creation and calling, he, he serves himself. He's curved in. His attention is entirely to himself. He's an, he's an idol maker. Well, in the Old Testament, there's a perspective of expectation, uh, and I'm going to summarize all of that uh, by referring to a, a kind of conclusion uh, in Hebrews 11:39 and 40. And all these things, though commanded through their faith, did, uh, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made Perfect. In other words, there was something about the Old Testament period that was always unfulfilled. It was always shadow. It was always type. It, it was always looking for something bigger, something. And, and, and the, 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 the Levitical system, for example, designed never to be complete, always repeating itself uh, and, and, and waiting for the fulfillment. So there's an expectation of a now and a not yet in uh, the Old Testament too. Now, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, and, uh, and the initial section here in verses 20 through 28. And uh, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under him, under his feet, that's a quotation. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, five things uh, I want to draw out of that uh, passage. First of all, Uh, the reversal of death in Adam by the resurrection of Christ. Uh, The reversal of death. So the end, heaven, will will be an existence in which there is no death. Death will have been destroyed. That's one of the accomplishments of Christ's own death 
and resurrection, a signal that death is ultimately going to be destroyed. That's, that's Paul's argument here for a future resurrection, that the power of death has been destroyed. Secondly, the destruction of all of Christ's enemies, uh, all dominion, authority, and power, including, uh, including death. Uh, he delivers to God the Father, uh, de- having destroyed, after having destroyed every rule and every authority and every, uh, every power. So the destruction of all of Christ's enemies. Thirdly, the handing over of his mediatorial kingdom uh, to the Father. In verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So the understanding here that Christ has been given a task to perform, a mediatorial task to perform, to save God's people, and having accomplished that task, he hands that, as it were, back to the Father as, a, as an accomplishment of his, handing over this mediatorial kingdom to the Father. Uh, and then in verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to him. The Son here in his mediatorial office, not the Son as the Son of God, right? There is no subjection of the second person to the first person or the second person to the third person. All the persons of the Godhead are equal. There is no, what we call, there's no ontological subordination in God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and they're, and, and they're not, they're not in, in a, a kind of gradation of powers. The Father first, the Son second, the Holy Spirit third. They're all of equal power and glory. There is but one God. But in his mediatorial office, the second person is also in union, in hypostatic union with his human, human nature, with his human body and soul. As the mediator... He is, I I come to do your will, oh my God, your law is within my heart. The purpose of the mediator is to do the will of his heavenly Father. And even even here, as the mediator, uh, he will be in eternal subjection to the Father. Uh, I don't understand this passage to suggest that that Jesus, once the kingdom is, is, is... is brought to the Father that somehow Jesus divests himself of his human nature. Jesus, I think, will always have a human nature. There will always be uh, the human nature of, of Christ at the right hand of God, eternally so. Uh, and then uh, God may be all in all. And, and again, uh, this, this is a complicated verse, but, but not suggesting that verse 28 is saying that then there will only be the Father. The Son sort of hands himself in subjection to, 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 to God the Father, and then there's only the Father. Not, not that. But the Son as the mediator will, will be eternally in subjection to God, and God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will be all in all. Um, so the, 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 the lesson here is that the goal of redemptive history has as its main focus the glory of God. The glory of God, the power of God, the dignity of God. God uh, being manifested as all in all. 
Now, when Christ returns, three things follow, uh, and I'm going to look at a couple of them. Um, The great resurrection change, the judgment and the rewards which follow, and we've already looked at uh, aspects of that judgment in uh, our consideration of hell. Uh, And thirdly, the regeneration or renewal of all things, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Well, let's look at uh, the first of those, the great resurrection change. Uh, The dead in Christ uh, will be raised, and those in Christ who are still alive will be changed, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in 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 a moment, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, All believers will be transformed, uh, whether they are alive or dead, uh, and the effect will be one and the same. The final change will take place. So those who are still alive uh, will will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Those who have died uh, will will be resurrected uh, from uh, their graves. But both of them, whether they're alive or dead, will be transformed into that condition uh, that, that, that is part and parcel of that, this new existence, this new heavens and new earth. Now, Paul discusses this resurrection change in First uh, Corinthians uh, 15 and at verse 35 and following. Uh, in answer to the question, we're going to look at this passage, in answer to the question, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body? What's involved in this change? And that's a, what kind of bodies are we going to have in the, in the resurrection order in the new heavens and in the new earth? So let's pick up this passage, 1 Corinthians 15. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? Uh, so Paul says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life until it dies. Right? So we have this principle. Uh, that we're very familiar with, that, that before something sort of comes to n- new life, they, they first of all must die, like a, like a seed that's uh, dead. It's lifeless, it's sitting there, it's, it's hard, it's dry as dust. Uh, and then you put it in the ground, water it, and, and it comes to life. Uh, so he's using that, that kind of image. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps, of wheat or some other grain. So he's he's saying, he's drawing a picture here from from everyday life. You sow a a little seed, and up pops a plant, a flower. You sow a little seed, and up pops a, 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 a corn, corn on the cob, yellow corn, corn that you that you eat. Right? You sow. You sow a seed, and up pops um, an oak tree. Right? And there's seeds, they're different kinds of seeds, but they're seeds. They all belong to the same sort of genus. They're all seeds. Um, but what emerges out of those seeds is different. And God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. Now, it seems to me fair enough to say from what Paul is saying there that he's talking about seeds, different kinds of seeds, producing different, different results. Some are 
some are humans, some are animals, some, some are birds, some are fish. Now, is he talking, he seems to be talking about the new heavens and the new earth. He's, he's talking about this world, and he's talking about death, sowing the seed, and then being raised different kinds. And it seems to me perfectly logical and perfectly reasonable to say that he's, he's, he's saying heaven, the new earth, the new heavens and new earth, the new existence that's coming will be populated by, well, humans and animals and birds and fish. I, I, I think that's a perfectly reasonable conclusion to draw which always baffles me when, when somebody asks the question, you know, are there dogs in heaven? And I'm, I've been asked that question hundreds of times, are there dogs in heaven? And the answer is, of course. Why, why would you ask such a silly question? Now, for some of you, if you ask the question, are there cats in heaven? You're gonna, that, that, uh, we're we're going to get into other issues here, but the answer is still, of course. So let me just stay with the dogs for a minute. What kind of new heavens and new earth are you actually expecting? It's going to be, there's going to be a bodily resurrection, so there's going to be a body with fingers and feet and hands and, and eyes and ears and, and a head and a, and a body, you know, a, a, a tangible, tactile, physical body, presumably obeying certain laws of physics, so gravity of some kind, they're not floating about in the air. Why would, you, why would you want to suggest this a thing? Right? So, so what is the new existence going to look like? And the, and the answer to me, seems to me from Scripture, is it's going to look like this. Except perfect. It's going to look like this without sin. Think of Eden. Think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What would the new existence have looked like had there been no sin? Well, Eden. How does Revelation end, and I'm jumping ahead now, but how does Revelation end with a picture of a garden city? Right, you've got the city of Jerusalem and the river running down to the Mediterranean. You've got, you've got like Harry and David on either side, all those trees, uh, fruit trees on either side, plum trees and, and pear trees and apple trees and, and, and peach trees, and they're on either side of the river. And it's a, it's a garden, it's physical, it's tangible. So it seems to me from this passage perfectly reasonable to say, are there animals in heaven? Of course, everything that God has created. Because the goal of redemption is restoration. And it seems to me that's a very important biblical principle. It's also a very Calvinistic principle as opposed to a Lutheran principle. But, but, but the, the, the goal... The goal of redemption is restorative. To restore creation to what God always intended it to be. Now, let me back to verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. So there are angels, and then there are archangels, and there are cherubim, and there are seraphim, and then there are 24 elders. And, and is that just pure symbolism, or are, are they actually a reference to some kind of... of, of of being that God has created. And there may, be, there may be creatures, created beings that we don't know anything about, that, that aren't even in the Bible. Right? So, so the kind of creatures 
that God has created for this universe will blow your mind away. Right? So there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. Now what is Paul saying? He's saying the new heavens and the new earth is going to be filled with all kinds of creatures and beauty and, and extraordinary sights. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, let me pause. Don't don't be thrown by that word spiritual. Not spiritual in the sense of non-material or non-physical, but spiritual. And actually, you know, you could... You could put a capital S if you want. Or you could put a capital S stroke small s. It is a body enlivened by and quickened by and gifted by the Holy Spirit. What what kind of bodies are we going to have? Spirit indwelt and empowered bodies. But still bodies, not spiritual in the sense of, 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 you know, you put your hand through it like a ghost like a cloud, like mist, not that. But, but the difference between here and there is the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the first fruits. Remember what, some of you can remember what you were before you became Christians. Now some of you, like, like Rosemary, can't remember that because she doesn't remember a day when she wasn't a, a believer. But some of us do. Some of us have a, a, a Saul of Tarsus-like conversion, and, and we, remember, we remember the change, and the change was almost physical. It, it was almost physical. You know, the, how, how the, the mind and the psyche affects the physical body. When I became a Christian, I was, I was in a fairly sort of depressed sort of state as a teenager. My parents were, were splitting up and so on, and, and it was just a bad time. And then I... I'm converted, and, and the, the change was almost physical. More energy. You know, you, you get up in the morning, and there's a purpose for life. There's a purpose for living. Puts a s- skip in your beat. What's, what does Nehemiah say? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Right? And it strengthens you. Well, imagine the change then from this world to the world to come. You know, part of growing old, I was telling, telling somebody over here. Uh, part of growing old is, you know, I remember the days when you woke up in the morning and you shot out of bed. And now it's, where am I? What time is it? What day is it? Do I really have to get out? It's still dark. Right? And, and, but but there's, a, there's a tangible difference here. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. It is, verse 44, it's sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, he's, he's drawing the contrast, as he does in Romans 5, he's drawing the contrast between the two Adams. Now, the first Adam and the last Adam, between Adam in the Garden of Eden and Jesus as the last Adam, as the, as the, as the, as the, um, the, uh, the second man. And... Uh, 
God breathed the Holy Spirit into Adam, and he became a living being. He became a living soul. He became soulish. He was alive. That's what happens at death. We've watched it happen. We saw it happen yesterday. They're alive, and they're breathing, and then suddenly they're not alive anymore. Life has gone out, and, and, and even, even a body, can, you can almost see physically life moving out of that body, and it's, it's something else. It's a corpse now. Well, Jesus, it, Jesus becomes the life-giving spirit. Right? At his death, what happens? He sends the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, as his personal representative agent, who's going to enliven our bodies to the nth degree. The first man, Adam, became a living being, a, a being given life by the Spirit. But the last Adam becomes a, a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And, is, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. He's doing the, the Adam-Christ parallel, as he does in Romans 5. What is the nature of our life in the world to come? Well, think of what happened to Jesus. Jesus is the prototype here. He's the first fruits. He rises from the dead. And, and let, me, let me, because of the time here, let me, let me drop down here to uh, some things uh, that he's saying here. There's uh, the, and look at that two-column two thing in number four, present body, future body. Perishable, imperishable, dishonorable, honorable, weakness, power. It's still a body, but it's, oh, you know, it's a, Dave Vanderwater and Ken Wingate and I and Lanny Lambert were having breakfast at, uh, at uh, Pancake House in uh, Trenum. What's the first word of it? Old? Original. 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 I didn't even know. Original Pancake House. And uh, outside there is this vehicle. It was a super, I don't even know what it was, but it was like something out of James Bond. And uh, we all stopped and looked at it, and then we asked questions, and, and asked him to lift up the hood just so he could see. I don't, I don't understand anything about it. I, I've, I've, the car I currently drive, I've, I don't think I've ever lifted the hood of it. I, why would I do that? I don't, why would I do that? But, but this was, there are cars, right? And, there were, and then there was this. And it was, in a, it was an order of carness that was totally new. It was still a car. Actually, it only had three wheels. But, but, and it, it, was, it was like something out of a movie. But, but it, was, it was of a different order. Of, and we all were in awe of it. Actually, I think most of us were envying. So we had to ask forgiveness and then move on. But, but it, was a, it, was, it was a car. It was a vehicle. It was a transport vehicle. It belonged to the same sort of genus, but, but it was different. Well, that's, that's the difference between this body and our resurrection body. 
It'll be a spiritual body with a capital S, supercharged by the Holy Spirit. You know, with that, that little button that you can press, you know, and then it's kind of supercharged. That's, what, that's how I think of it. Um, the resurrection body is, is glorious. Um, I, my, I'm, uh, the clock is going against me. Um, let, let me pick up as a, as, a, as a way of thinking about it. I, I think it's legitimate to think about the transfiguration of Jesus as a, as a way of thinking about what will happen What's the difference between this body that you've got now and the body that you'll have in, in the new heavens and new earth? And what happens to Jesus' body? You know, Jesus' body in the transfiguration has certain qualities. It's still a body. It's still physical. It still obeys the laws of gravity. But it was different. It shone. There was, a, there was an other worldliness, as, as though it belonged, it was still a body, still a physical body, but it, it was as though it belonged to a different realm from out of this world. Now, uh, the resurrection, and I pick it up on that page, uh, the resurrection body is identifiable. Uh, yes. Um, you know, there are, some, there are some issues with the resurrection of Jesus when he's on the Emmaus Road and the two were kind of looking down at their feet and walking to Emmaus and suddenly Jesus is beside them but they don't recognize him. They don't recognize him because I think something sovereign is going on. Their eyes were, 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 were held from recognizing him. But then when he speaks in Emmaus, the voice recognition returns. And they recognize him, the, f- the features, the shape of his face, the sound of his voice. Th- there, was, there was something different, but there was something that they recognized about him too. His physical body after the resurrection has certain qualities. Uh, it, ap- it ap- disappears. Now, physical bodies in and of themselves don't disappear, but what is that saying? Perhaps it's saying that, that in the new heavens and new earth there will be... I don't know what it's saying. It's saying it's laws of physics that, that may be slightly different in the new order of being. Laws of physics that themselves in this world are part and affected by the fall, by, by sin. That wouldn't surprise me. Um, Leading to, let me pick up because uh, I've got a minute, leading to uh, the regeneration of all things, Matthew 19, 28, the regeneration of all things. Uh, the long-promised restoration uh, which uh, will accompany the return of Christ from heaven. Uh, and it's there, I think, in Romans 8, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, for we know the whole creation has been groaning together in pain of childbirth until now. So what are we, what, what, what's the goal here? The goal, as I say, is Isaiah 65, 17, 66, 22, 2 Peter 3, 13, the new heavens and the new earth. There's a new earth. The meek will inherit the earth. You know, what is heaven like? Well, it's a renewed earth. 
It's a renewed cosmos. It's a renewed universe. Birds, fish, animals, rivers. I know the book of Revelation says there'll be no more sea. It it doesn't mean that there'll be no oceans or no whales or dolphins. I don't think that's what it means. It means something else. So, So that's the big picture. My time is gone. That's the big picture. Next week we'll ask some of the more practical questions about heaven, of, of which I'm sure there'll be many. And, 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 and let me make a promise next week. I'll open it up to questions. How about that? Right, so I'll try and speak less and, and, and I'll entertain some questions next week. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we remember the words of Scripture that I has not seen nor ear heard neither has it entered into the heart of man what you have prepared for those that love you. And we look forward to heaven. We look forward to this new existence, not just the existence immediately after death, but the existence of a, in a new resurrection body when all things are made new and uh, what th- that'll mean and, and living for eternity and no sin and no death, no pain, no bereavement. And we can scarcely begin to take all of that in, but it sounds wonderful and glorious and something that we anticipate and something we look forward to. And we hold it before us now as we journey through this life, knowing that the first, we are the first fruits that the Holy Spirit indwelling us is the guarantee, the down payment of that which is to come. We thank you that we are in union and communion with the Lord Jesus who died and rose again and ascended and now occupies this realm of glory and we too in union with him will be raised to this newness of life. So help us Lord to run with perseverance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen.